Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, Oxford University, and Kantar, the data insights and consulting company. In each episode, we speak to industry leaders about the big issues in marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. I'm Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean of Research at the Said Business School. I'm Jane Osler, Global Head of Media, Insights Division of Cantor. Today, our guest is Marco Rimini, who is the Chief Development Officer for Mindshare. Um, Part of his role is to ensure that Mindshare is kept in the right shape for the future. Previously, Marco's been in global strategy roles, working on and running a whole load of different client accounts, including Nestle and Ford and various others. So today, what we're talking to Marco about is looking ahead for this year and perhaps a bit beyond that. It's the beginning of 2020. Kantar's just released our media trends and predictions, so we'll be touching on some of those too. So welcome, Marco. Thank you. So to kick things off, Marco, how about we just hear your perspective on kind of what's coming up in this media landscape, you know, whether it's this year or this decade? It's been a fascinating start to the year, actually, because I went to CES in uh, Las Vegas at the beginning of the year, and you really do sort of see what people are talking about for the future. Not all of it will come true. Uh, so the Uber helicopter is possibly a long-term project. <laughs> um, but you really do see how people are trying to solve for the future. I think the biggest thing for us is going to be, in a very practical sense, dealing with the way people shop now. 
So e-com and the consequence of more and more DTC, direct-to-consumer brands, changes everything about media because in the end, media is a path to buying something. So if you change the way people buy something, then of course almost everything else changes above that. And you're not going to see that slow down. So it's very live today, but it'll continue to be a big live issue going forward. And so how, how are some of the, let's call them, non-D2C brands or clients uh, approaching this? And how do you see them changing perhaps their, their media strategies accordingly? Uh, it's interesting really to compare because we've got clients on both ends of the spectrum. So one end of the spectrum, we have Booking.com or we have Dyson who are fundamentally D2C players. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we are very involved, uh, as Jane mentioned, with CPGs like a Nestle or like a Unilever. Um, and then sort of in the middle, you've got the cars. And uh, really, they're each learning from each other. Hmm. So what you're finding is the platform companies, the DTC companies, are trying to uh, get help on how to build brands. So for them, they've, mm -hmm. if you like, mastered or continue to refine their mastery of the uh, bottom of the funnel crudely. So they're very interested in new forms of shoppable media. What should we trial? Where are our sales going to come from? What's going to be the impact of the various different new forms of social media as they become shoppable? But they're interested in how do I build my brand? Mm -hmm. So they're interested actually in beyond the advertising space into partnerships, sponsorships, partnering of assets, be they sporting companies, be they uh, film companies, be they you know mm -hmm. esports companies. For the CPGs, for the people who are less directly consumer, for, they are trying to acquire those skills. So they really are trying to make sure that they own more of the experience all the way through to all the way through to purchase. So they're more interested in lining up the bottom of the funnel with their skills in the top of the funnel. Mm -hmm. So we had a couple of predictions in our report talking mm. about some of these issues. One one of them was to do with shoppable advertising or shopvertising. And obviously there's lots of different social media platforms getting involved with these sort of direct link between advertising and commerce now. What challenges does that present for you? Shopvertising, which is a interesting <laughs> use of English uh, for which you should be condemned uh, <laughs> thank you uh, yeah. not at all yeah, I didn't invent it <laughs> no, no, I'm sure you wouldn't have done something like that the fact that all media is now effectively shoppable which is probably an equally you know, poor mm -hmm. use of language <laughs> yeah. uh, means that the purchase funnel has collapsed and so what you've effectively got is a situation where you're trying to manage that customer experience and the various things companies mm -hmm. want to do with brands in a much, much, much more constrained and direct way. So it means that you can, if you like, go straight from finding something attractive to buying it in a nanosecond. Whereas historically, of course, it was an attenuated decision chain. It can still be attenuated because you might like it and not like it or find those other stimulus that make you then go back to, to shop it. But it's not so media specific. So all media are now more or less capable of carrying all forms of action. And that therefore makes the media plan a much, much more fluid object, something that really isn't anymore an allocation of spend to a particular objective by channel, but much more a selection of channels that we're asking the customer to engage with in the way they want to engage rather than the way in which we or our clients want to engage. It also provides much bigger budgets because, of course, a lot of the budgets that were in the sales channel mm -hmm. or the retail channel have suddenly becoming, in inverted commas, media budgets because you can put them through the platforms. So the media companies change from being literally 
meter owner companies to effectively being total experienced companies or something equally poor English. <laughs> <laughs> and does that change the nature of, of uh, campaigns as well? I'm, I'm thinking of uh, markets like China, for example, where... Uh, shoppable advertising, you could argue, is you know they're at the forefront of, of some of these trends, and where that means that retail patterns become much more peaky. It means that key opinion leaders are involved in co-creation of products, for example, and it also means that then what was a sort of perfectly constructed media plan maybe ten years ago, um, with phasing and all that kind of thing, becomes something that's far more. I'm going to use another buzzword, agile or, or fluid. Is that your perception? Absolutely. Mm. So broadly, look to China for the future. Right. So if you really are interested in the future, you want to go to China uh, and you want to see the way the platforms play out in China and in particular the payment systems on the platforms. The role of things like the Singles Day and the interrelationship on things like Singles Days between quite mass forms of entertainment then to your point, influencers or personalities and the way those brands are used, those personalities, and then how that relates to the channels, the platforms and, and the payment systems. Because in that, you see a really quite, I think, dramatically different form of marketing than you do in sales, than you do in our historic world. Because you both see the brand building, much more personality-led, much more influencer-led, if you like, but not necessarily influencer narrowly in terms of an Instagram. You know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a broader thing than a... And then you also see how that can convert very, very directly into purchases. So the, the plans are, as I said, really, they aren't any longer a sort of carefully controlled and, as you put it, phased plan. Where you can have some level of control is over those events. So I think it is a, a little bit too extreme to suggest that all we do now is give people things to play with and it's <laughs> up to them how they play with them. You can't really run a business, either our business or our client's business like that. You need some form of management control and that's why things like Black Friday or things like Singles Day are, are really important because you can really focus on those moments and then have strategies between those peaks which are, if you like, a little bit more open-ended rather than fluid, but open-ended. I want to talk a little bit more about the role of data analytics, AI, in quotes, in that sort of fluidity or, or yeah. dynamic, you know, adjustable media plans, let, let's call yeah, them. Yeah. You know, where, where do you see that headed? Because I think there's, you know, we've talked actually on this podcast before about that in the context of creative and, and using AI to help, you know, assist with creative processes and, and so on. But it's interesting to think about it from the media side as well and, and a strategy side. What's going on in, in that space well, the most interesting thing about CES, I think, was to see IoT come alive. So uh, 5G, which is in your study, is really just an enabling mechanism for the much-predicted Internet of Things. And then if you at CES, you just saw the reality of how data would be available from almost any object. And I think there were some bed sheets which rather uncomfortably <laughs> would transmit the condition of your uh, state of your body during the night pause for reflection <laughs> um, all the way through to embedding them in many many health and wellness devices mm -hmm. which very positively actually you can really see health and wellness probably being a leader and a positive leader in that space uh, what you really though see is a world in which marketing moves from being reactive to being anticipatory mm -hmm. what you're really going to see is that it's almost going to be the end of demand-led marketing where the consumer signals 
through an action that they take a demand and ask and it becomes much more a situation where the AI will predict what it is that you want as the result of your history or some of the other signals you've been giving off and makes suggestions to you. So voice is probably the way that lands right now because voice is the most obvious movement in that in that space, voice search. Mm-hmm. And as part of that move towards predictive behavioural change, how does trust fit into that? Because obviously if if we're to trust decisions or being made on our behalf or things being presented to us in an anticipatory fashion, we need to be able to trust that our data is being used in the right way. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think for people in media in the broadest sense, the ethical debate will become actually the the only one I can genuinely predict will be important for the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else is up for grabs and 10 mm-hmm. years is a very long time. What I can say for certain is that we don't have the right amount of ethical frameworks, decisions, legislative frameworks either around the implications of what we see. And we are going to have to find a new and better framework. And we need to take our own level of responsibility for that because in the end the internet crudely is funded by the advertisers so at the end of the day it is our clients who bear a significant proportion of the praise or blame for the consequences of google or facebook less so for amazon but certainly google or facebook and we need to take their responsibility seriously because uh, as we all know ai can be biased because human beings are unconsciously biased and in the end AI is a consequence of that human frailty. So we have to find a way I think of um, working through what the rights people have. I think one of the most interesting ideas is that we should stop worrying about the data input and start thinking about having rights over how that data has been used in order to influence a decision. So historically, GTBR has worried a great deal about are you using data that is legally I'm okay to use? Well, you might use perfectly legal data, but if you then combine that data Mm -hmm. based on an assumption which I don't agree with and the conclusion is I don't get the job or I'm served an advertisement or I've made an offer of a service that I find offensive, then all the compliance and the data entry in the world won't stop you feeling that you have been badly done by. So maybe it's the other end of the decision-making process we need to look at. It's interesting to think then about that in the consumer's mind because this is increasingly complex. And you know, to, to Jane's point about trust, well, one way to build trust in, let's say, an AI system or a recommendation algorithm you know, is transparency. But of course, you know, that's hard to do with, with very complex uh, deep learning AI. So how do we get this across to the consumer in a manner that can not only build trust, but also be good for brands and obviously be good for the, for the consumer's welfare? I think part of that is in, inevitably going to be a technical legal argument, but the actual important argument is to be able to involve people in those discussions and make sure that they understand that you are thinking about these things and that you are trying to put in some safeguards for them. Because at the moment, it becomes very quickly a technical thing as opposed mm-hmm. to a principles thing. I think we need to go out there and say that we are understanding of the fact that we have a big responsibility here. and as we have done in the past with the content of traditional advertising and the media around traditional advertising, I think there was a very well articulated and understood deal. People understood that their programming was going to be interrupted by a certain period of time for, to be sold at. Mm. But the good news about that was you got the programming for inverted commas free. 
They also understood that those advertisements were regulated in terms of content and pre-checked, and that politicians, for example, were not allowed to buy into that airtime. We're now in a situation where that historic deal has obviously broken down in many, many, many different channels, many, many different ways, and we've got to get back to a, a, a deal that people understand. And I think people at the moment don't really understand what the deal, the deal is. So who's, whose job is it to seek some form of control over communicating what the deal is? Because it's very complicated and it's global and it involves, you know, legal regulatory matters, policy, industry, the media advertisers and consumers. So how, how might all this happen on a global scale? For me, the easy answer is that it should be led by the government's. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's a it's an ethical debate about values. And in a democracy, the idea would be that they are the people who will say what give us that framework. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Clearly, if, uh, on a global basis, that's slightly harder to do. But I still think that at the end of the day, governments need to take a kind of a lead on this. In the absence of of that, or given how difficult that is, I think it is a tripartite relationship between the advertisers, the media owners, and the agencies. Because in the end of the day, that was the framework that used to exist, where there was a cooperation between the three parts. So self-regulation. Well, I'm not putting that above government regulation, which okay. is where this conversation tends to go. I'm not mm -hmm. suggesting self-regulation is better than government regulation. I'm just saying in the absence of a government regulation, mm -hmm. self-regulation is better than no regulation. <laughs> yeah. And it may be that we have to write the rules in self-regulation such that government can then see a framework which they may want to legislate for. But I'm absolutely not saying that it's, we should have primacy over, over government legislation. It's just more practical maybe for us to do something than mm -hmm. getting the politicians to do it. And I still think it is true that when you ask people, how is Facebook funded? Where does the money come from? I think less than half of the people who'd ask in any walk of life would understand that it was basically funded through advertising. Uh, and that's, I think, the heart of the trust issue. People don't really understand where the money comes from and therefore they don't really understand the deal they're entering into. It's not the data per se. It's actually not the data. It's the fact that the data is used to advertise to them and that the money comes through advertising. I think the people actually, if you explain that, probably <laughs> they may or may not find that. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because they've dealt with that all their lives through, you know, historically, historic channels. So maybe we're a bit more worried about this. We should just be a little bit more be clearer. 
a clarification might be needed. Well, it'd be yeah. a good start because then people would at least start in the same the same place. So while we're talking about big, lofty, and important global challenges, what else should we put on the table here in terms of big issues? So obviously the biggest for us as a whole is the issue around climate change and the transition that we need to make to a carbon neutral negative world and the role that advertising and um, marketing plays in that. And again, you're right, it's extremely lofty and extremely, you know, like the last debate, um, something that isn't uh, necessarily embedded in our day-to-day. And I think the challenge is to embed it in the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And the same with the ethical debate. If we let it become something we don't think about in the day-to-day, then I think it just escapes us. Climate change, or dealing with the consequences of climate change and the behavioural changes required, is a very practical issue. And... Depending on how you add the numbers up, there's $600 billion a year spent on advertising. And all of that advertising in some way encourages certain lifestyles, attitudes and behaviours. And imagine what it would be like if you could just take a sliver of that or a sliver of every portion of that to encourage the lifestyles, behaviours and attitudes which are more consistent with a transition to a carbon neutral world. Well, that's what we think is something we could take on. So at Mindshare, we've launched something called Change the Brief. It's something we'd like the industry to pick up on. I'm presenting it to anyone and everyone who wants to engage in, but we're starting it on a global basis. And the idea is that we'll encourage our people to present back to the client not only what the clients asked for, but an alternative which might help promote those attitudes, lifestyles and behaviours. From very, very small ideas to very, very big ideas. So very, very small ideas could be to do with the way that a particular range of foods is promoted but perhaps spend a little bit more behind those foods which are slightly lower carbon footprint than higher carbon footprint. So the level of spend behind a range would change. In content, where very simplistically you could make sure that every time there is a kitchen in an advertisement that you see the recycling bin and people are actually using it, again, subconsciously at least people would get, that's what should be should be done. Uh, in production, where perhaps rather than have people jumping into cars, you have people jumping onto bikes. I mean, some of these sound trivial, but imagine $600 billion worth of spend mm-hmm. <laughs> with a tiny, tiny little change in each in each one. So I'd like to think that uh, our industry would, would be able to help in that challenge. That sounds really interesting, and it would be great to see how those play out in action in, in real life. How How would you judge if you changing the brief was successful if you look back in a year or two's time how will you know if it's worked Uh, really practically have Mm -hmm. we presented a reasonable amount of alternatives to our clients and have they been bought Uh, certainly responses that we've had from clients clients are very interested in seeing answers clients are as worried about this as we are and as open if not more open to ideas than us so for us it's very simple how many ideas we've shown how many ideas have been bought and obviously in the midterm, you know, have those ideas and, you know, had the consequent consequent actions. So for us it's really just let's get going, let's try and do let's try and take these lofty things down into the day to day. So the debate that's gone on the last few years about purpose led marketing has moved on from, you know, how do you really truly embed this as part of a, a company's values and actions rather than it simply being portrayed as a sort of veneer or a marketing play. Is there something in this changing the brief which can ensure that it becomes embedded in the client's communications, but also their behaviour and their actions as well? I, I very much hope so. Uh, the 
all of these debates really to uh, the ethical debates around AI, the issues around climate change, um, they're all about a license to operate. And I really do think that if we don't get these things right, the industry and marketing for sale will be start to lose its license to operate. The trust you talked about, you know, people want to believe that we are an industry that is actually genuinely concerned about the quality of what we do and the impact of what we we do. And we've got to try and embed it into day-to-day behaviour, otherwise it's an irrelevance. So for us, we are so lucky to be of a size. Group M, of which Mindshare is a key part, buys one in three of all advertising spaces in the world. If you've got a third of the market, you have a responsibility to make the market. Make the market on behalf not only of our shareholders and our clients, but also on behalf of the people who are engaged in that market and to make it a good market. And I think that that is the opportunity we have over the next, and we are beginning of the year, beginning of the decade, so why not (laughs) aim big, (laughs) you know, over the next few years is to make that market into a market we believe in and want want to work in. This also implies a a different kind of relationship between an agency and a client. It implies that uh, it's more of a partnership, more of a level playing field. And, you know, you're trying to influence other forms of behaviour as well. So how does that change the nature of the discussions you have with clients? I think it goes back to a much more partnership based relationship, I think. And, you know, I've been around long enough to remember the days where it was very, very much more of a partnership. And I think we are going back to that. And I think we will look back on the era where procurement were perhaps working for the wrong brief. I don't think the people in procurement are a problem. I think the brief to which they're operating is probably the problem as a blip. And I think we are now much more partnering with our clients on data, on technology, on these ethical issues, on the ability to change and transform and the requirements on both sides to do that. And therefore, into the issue of in-housing, out-housing is not an adversarial debate. It's a question of how do we manage that relationship and partnership to the best advantage. And I think that we will go back to a more partnership-led approach. And I certainly see WBP and us trying very hard and making sure that our best clients feel and understand that we want to partner on these issues and certainly our best partners are our clients. And if that partnership isn't there, then I think in the end it it becomes an industry which isn't what it was or what it could be. Um, But I think there is a real chance to reignite that sort of level of partnership now. to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit uk.cantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. 
Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.